<laughs> okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, so it's Lagba Omer, which is awesome, and uh, I just uh, just we're we're just talking just for a brief moment, just about um, trying to reclaim this word rich, because rich is is defined as being happy with what you with what you have, being semech bechelko, and um, so with your share with your lot. And, um, and it's not a financial thing. Because someone can be happy with their lot and, and have literally nothing. There's no price tag associated with the, with, the, with the status of rich in Torah. Because ultimately, it's a, um, it really is a, a, a point of view and a mindset. Um, now, now, there is such a thing as having a lot of money. But it would be, I think, very worthwhile when in our... For those of us who are really working on ourselves and, and trying to be very careful when we use the word rich that, we're, that we don't mean it in a financial way. I mean, that, that there, there, there needs to be a word for that also. We can say wealthy. We can, we can come up with other words. But let's save the word rich, which is so filled with meaning. I mean, it's such a charged word. Let's save that word for someone who has achieved some sort of... Um, Kind of like um, emotional and and inner peace and and you know that 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 level of, of person that level of refinement because um, that that's really what it is and in today's society there's so many examples of this um, but the most current one and I, I feel bad even bringing it up just because it just seems so tawdry but. Um, but it's just worth just, just mentioning it, just on, on the most simple level. So you have um, Arnold Schwarzenegger has been in the news lately, um, unfortunately. And, and here's a person who, you know, literally held the title of Mr. Universe, which was a bodybuilding competition title, and then achieved wild fame, you know, uh, as a movie star, action star. And then in his first run for office... I mean, becomes governor of California, which, which is one of the springboards to the White House. I mean, that is, that's a giant office. By the way, to be governor, I don't know if everyone realizes this. This is just basic uh, civics right now. A governor is the president of the state. That's, that's what it is. So you're, he's the president of the largest state in the country. And the economy of um, California alone is larger than most countries in the entire world. Like, it's way up there. If you counted California as a separate country, it would be like, I don't know, in the top ten in the world, something like that. You know? So, so here's a guy who's one of the leading figures. And, um, you, know, you know, what was his level of inner peace? You know, he, he fathers a child... With his, um, with, his, with his housekeeper, who, who bears his child the same time, few days apart, as his legal wife fathers a child. I think that was both of their first kids. So he has two kids the same week with two different women. One is his housekeeper, who continues to live in his house. I don't know what the status of the relationship was, one can imagine. For 20 years! For 20 years. So essentially he has a situation where he has two wives living in his house. And doesn't tell his wife what 
that he's fathered a child with their housekeeper. So, what I'm saying is, and again, I'm, my point is not to shake my forefinger at him and to condemn him. That's not, not the point. I mean, that's not for me to do. What, you know, what I'm trying to bring up, though, is that how many people would look at this guy who's a stunning, handsome, muscle man, you know, who whatever, it seems like whatever he wants, he snaps his fingers and gets whatever he wants, you know? What was his level of joy and happiness and, and, and inner peace, right? So just, you know, history presents us with like just, it just seems like there's an endless parade of these, of these examples, you know? And again, what's, so what's the point? The point is, is that, you know, if you've got a measure of peace because you're doing the right thing, man, that, do you know what that's worth? Do you know what that's worth? I mean, it's worth more than being the governor of California. It's worth more than getting $20 million per picture, which is what he was getting at a certain point. It's worth more than being on the cover of every magazine. You know, like the, the, with the Adonis-type figure, right? Just a measure of peace. And then, and then you say, well... You know, just a measure of peace. What? That's that's not so simple, right? Just you know, it's funny because you know the path of Breslov, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, speaks very much about um, being a being a, a simple person, like a simple Jew, meaning to say uh, amuna pshuta, which means simple faith. But the 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 irony is that I think it takes a tremendously sophisticated person to achieve simplicity. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, it's, it's a bit ironic, because in order to refine yourself into someone who says, you know something, what's going on? It's, God runs the world, there's a God, God runs the world, there's me, there's God, there's, there's all of us, you know, and, um, you know, I'm just going to trust in God. Boy, yeah, now try living that. <laughs> now try living that. You know, it's, 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 you know, I'll tell you something. I've noticed a change in myself recently. I just want to share it with you guys. Um, just um, something that I've noticed. I, I, I used to, you know, I used to want to keep my mind busy constantly. So just wherever I was, whatever I was doing, just... Thinking about something, thinking about something, thinking about something. Now, if you're in the middle of learning Torah, that's, that's a different level, and that's actually a, a better level. Or if you're in the middle of davening, like for instance, to walk to your car and to be talking to God, to be davening for people, to be working on some, some Torah uh, problem or Devar Torah, whatever it is, working through something, that, that's an excellent, that, that, that's, that's something to strive for. That's a really good place to be. One should be there. But to, short of that, if one is not going to do that, just to be keeping your mind busy, to be keeping your mind busy. You know what I'm saying? Like, like and I would, I would try to um, spark conversation in my own head. You know what I mean? If, if I didn't have anything to really to think about for whatever reason, I'd be like, what's going on? What, what's going on right now? What are you doing? Well, you know, like, I'm saying, like, some of that could be valuable. You should be goal-oriented. But I, I found, I found that, that 
that at a certain point it hit me, you know what? That's just, what is that? That's not, that's not good. That's not like, oh, um, you have a mind, use your mind. That's not that. That's like a misuse. Like just sort of silence and just being able to just stand there quietly or walk quietly and sort of be in a state of tranquility is, I think, a, a much higher level, actually, than just sort of like, you know, and I just want to make the distinction right now. I'm not just talking about random chatter in your brain. Everyone sort of knows that if it's just chatter, 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 that you, that you want to not have that, you know? I, I'm, what I'm talking about is deliberately just um, forcing yourself to think about things that aren't really, that don't really have a, 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 a real value in the here and now. That, it's, silence is better than that. And, and um, you know, this level of tranquility is really an exalted state. You know, you know I'll, t- I'll tell you something, there was a, something, I don't know if you guys heard this, there was a, an advance that was made, a new study, one of the reasons why I like listening to NPR, I have a, a sort of a love-hate relationship with NPR. Uh, their, their politics, especially on Israel, is just nuts, you know, and uh, really, really toxic. On the other hand, their, their, their reporting of, you know, science and, and stuff like that is so wonderful. And they had uh, something this week, which was, um, they noticed about gossip that when they did a test, that when someone is exposed to gossip, they literally see the person differently. They, they did tests where they measured it, where you see the person differently, literally. They look different to you after you hear certain information about them. And it's funny because this is what the Torah has been saying for thousands of years, and why this is one of the most you know, I saw uh, the Vilna Gon wrote that it's the single worst sin in the entire Torah. Misusing speech. The single worst one, like you would think. Worse than murder, worse than idol worship. I mean, he didn't say that casually. You know, this is the Vilna Gon who knows, like, the entire Torah backwards and forwards, literally. I mean, for him to venture a statement like that, that's, that's coming from a place of thorough knowledge of Torah. So... So the thing is, is that remember, when our tradition is that when God created the world, he spoke the world into creation. Right now, God doesn't have a physical, God doesn't have a body, doesn't have a mouth. But nonetheless, this is just, these are very far out ideas that we're expressing in terms of, you know, ways that, that we can relate to them. So God spoke the world into creation, which means that speech creates Speech creates reality. And, and this is yet another example of how if you describe someone or speak about someone in some way, that you literally alter the way someone else views their physicality. Right? Like, you know, I mean, even think of like, like, like people talking. Let's say it in a more positive way, right? Where it's like, let's say a girl likes a guy, Right? And she feels a little bit self-conscious that she likes the guy because the guy's maybe, you know, 
borderline in terms of looks, right? So she feels like a little self-conscious about liking him. And then her friend goes, oh, I think he's cute. And then it's sort of like, oh, man, that's permission. You just, What a blessing. You just got the biggest permission in the entire world. And then it's sort of like, yeah, he is sort of cute, isn't he? You know? You know, I'll tell you another thing. You know, but really, it's, it's true. You, but, but I'm saying in the positive way right now, you'll now, you'll now see that person in a different way. You know? Someone told me one time that... Um, a good, a good thing is if a guy hangs around beautiful women, other women will see him as more desirable. You know, that's another thing, because they think, well, they all are hanging out with him, so he must be... Well, I don't see... Well, yeah, I sort of see it now. You know, like you just kind of talk yourself into it, you know? It's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting thing, you know? Um... There's something called in psychology the halo effect. My dad told me about it sometime, one time, which is that um, sometimes it's like uh, if you get the stamp of approval from a place that you approve of, like for instance, if someone's gone to Oxford or something like that, then you tend to see that person in the light of someone who's already been accepted. And so you judge them more favorably. Because it's sort of like, well, Oxford let the guy in, you know, so, you know. Oh, well, that wasn't a stupid joke. He must have meant something by that. Could have been a stupid joke, but it's sort of like, no, there was something a little bit more in there. I'm just missing it, you know. So it's all of these things, all of these things. Um, so so this is the, the Yurtzeit, Lagba Omer, is the Yurtzeit of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and who's the author of the Zohar. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, this, it's this amazing day. It's this turning point. You know, right now in the calendar, you should know, there, there are two big turning points that, that we've just had. And in terms of, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an astrologer, and I'm not trying to forecast anything, but I'm just telling you on a very simple level, there's been a shift in energy on the in terms of the, the, the calendar. And, and let me just preface what I'm about to say with the following. My father got his um, car stolen on his birthday. And he often told me that that month, the uh, police statistics came out and car theft went down that month. So, <laughs> you know, you can, car theft can go down, but if you got your car stolen that month, it doesn't really help, you know? So, so statistics are... Statistics are statistics, you know. But so, so with that caveat, I'd like to share the following thought, which is that the energy has shifted in a very positive way in terms of the calendar right now. And the reason why I tell you that is because of two things. One is, um, we just read Parshas Bechukosai, which is one of the two places in the Torah where you have a list of in English, you know, well, let me use the Hebrew word, klalos, um, which are uh, usually translated as curses, but maybe consequences is a better um, uh, translation. And the, the reason, the, the sages deliberately orchestrated the way we read the Parshas in, in a way that you have these two things happening right before New Year's. One is before Shavuos, always, which is one of the New Year's on the calendar. It's a New Year for fruit-bearing trees, and it's um, 
it's, 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 it's one of the New Year's in the calendar. And the other is Rosh Hashanah, which is also one of the New Year's, uh, New Year's for years. And we always have uh, that Parsha with those consequences read before, beforehand. And the sages said that the idea is that you get rid of all the bad stuff before the New Year begins. So that's why it's before, before the New Year. So, so there's a bit of a cleansing. You know what I mean? Like if you think of like a, a pressure valve that's like building up and building up, building up, you let all the steam out right before the New Year starts, so you're starting off on a, on a very positive footing. So that's what we read yesterday. Today is Lagba Omer. Today is the day that the plague stopped. Okay, there was a plague that was killing um, Rabbi Akiva's students, and they say 24,000 students died and just wiped out his, his school. And these were tremendous giants, and they got wiped out. You know, interestingly, you know, you see this, this same number in the Torah, 24,000 people dying, when um, Pinchas, um, with the whole incident with Cosby and Zimri, where Cosby, um, who is the prince of the tribe of Shimon, has relations with Zimri, a plague starts and it says 24,000 people died. And then Pinchas comes in and does what he does and that ends the plague. But there's this correlation between those souls and these souls. And that's, 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 an, interesting, uh, that's an interesting, you know, overlap. But, but anyway, that's for another time. So, so, so there's, a, uh, there's a way of counting the Omer. The, the, the reason why we say that, um, that the students died, the Gomorrah itself says, is because the students didn't give proper covet to each other, proper respect to each other. And this is, this is, a, this is worth discussing and is a very big topic in itself. You see, it's a problem if, if, if righteousness and truth leads to arrogance. And this is something that any sincere, <coughs> truth-seeking um, person who's interested in spirituality and, and, and refining themselves, refining the world, has to be really on guard for at all times. You know, just as a total side note, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think that Apple is a cult, by the way. <laughs> I, I have my suspicions about Apple. <laughs> um, and... You know, and this is of someone who's like counting the days till the iPhone 5 comes out, by the way. So I, I really want to get one of those. So anyway, but, but I saw an ad and, and this just came out. It was on the back of this week's New Yorker. Okay. You know, Apple has the best, they have the best everything, right? So, but anyway, they have, it's a, it's a white, it's a, you know, a white background, you know, just purity, simplicity, just like, it's like futuristic. Their way that somehow conjures the future, you know, but it's now, you know, it's just they, they do everything right, you know. And then you have this iPhone with a white background, right, because the white case just came out. Most iPhones have a black case. Now they have the white case, right? So now this is, and now it's sort of like, sort of like kind of just 
kind of rakishly askew, it's kind of balancing on one of the corners, and it's, you know, like this beauty shot of the, of the, of the iPhone in the white case. And then in black, bold letters, okay, because everything is pretty much white, on black, bold letters, on top, perfectly centered, it says, finally, period. Right? Like, like every day during Shema Kalenu and Shema Nesra, I say, please, God, when is the new white iPhone coming out? Please, God. And also the base of Migdash. Please bring the base of Migdash too. But the white iPhone, please, God. I can't endure it any longer. <laughs> you know, this idea of finally. So I showed it to a few people. And I said, do you see any... Because it seems to me that they've really avoided arrogance so perfectly, given the fact that they're now the number one, they just were, they just beat Google as being the number one brand in the whole world. And they're like, you know, they've sort of like left Microsoft pretty much in, their, in the dust, you know. They're like, that's it, you know. The stock is at like 350, and they say it could go up to 500. I mean, it's just, it's just nuts. It's just nuts. Like, what in the American economy is working? Let's start with Apple, right? You know, because that, my goodness, right? Now, I showed it to a few people and I said, do you think this is arrogance, right? This idea, finally, right? And I, I, and I only showed it to about three people. And here's what each of the three people said. No, finally, yes, no, finally, it's out. <laughs> and I thought, oh man, it's a cult. It's a, they've got everyone. They've got everyone. You know? Like, they didn't see it at all. Now, I'm, I might be wrong. This might be me being just, like, hypercritical, and I'll, 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 I'll accept that. And you know what? Even if I'm right, big deal. Like, you know, what's at stake here, really? You know? But anyway, what, 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 um, what, I, what I want to mention, though, is this idea of this danger where, you see, we actually believe in a concept of truth. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things, I think it's one of the accommodations that democracy makes, okay? So that we don't kill each other, so that we can live in peace. Like, like for instance, the front page of the New York Times today basically is saying that, um, and it's the lead story, it's talking about the quote-unquote Arab Spring, which I think is a a term that we're going to look back on with tremendous, like, irony and bitterness. I hope not. But I, I really hope it turns into a genuine spring in the sense that these democratic um, institutions actually take root. You know, democracy is, is a very, is a, is a really, really um, elusive thing where you, you have to have, like, these social conventions in place and these institutions in place so that people were like, sort of like, okay, you know, you want to, um, you're elected for this amount of time, and then you got to step out of office. Like, you know, they wanted to keep on making George Washington president, by the way. George Washington, by the way, I don't know if you know this, was a major stud. And by, by that, I mean he was like this big, strong, handsome general. Women loved him. I'm not saying he was, like, promiscuous or anything like that, but he was like... He was like a major dude, you know? Like, we kind of think of him as like a little boy with an axe, and he's holding it behind his back, and he's got a cherry tree, and that's kind of like, that's George Washington for us. George Washington was like, hip, you know? 
And he became the first president of the United States, and they wanted to keep on making him president, you know? And he was like, no. And that blew people's minds, you know, that he, that he did that. He was like, no, it's going to be rotation of power, and we're not going to do this whole king thing, and I'm stepping aside. And ever since then, people have been like, you know, you got your time in office, you step aside. That is so against normalcy. People get into power and it's like, oh, it's my turn? No, now I'm going to kill you. Now, you don't understand. No, no, no. I'm not packing my bags. I'm a, yeah, shoot him now, the person who told me to leave office. That's normal, historically speaking. So, so but you need sort of institutions. Now, can you imagine if, if a president of the United States said, I'm not leaving. <laughs> You're going to have to drag me out of here. You know, people would be like, what are you talking about? Because an institution has been established with certain social conventions, and then people have expectations. There are no expectations in these new countries where there have just been dictatorships. A lot of times, what happens is, in a, in a fledgling democracy, is a party runs with the stated open ambition that once we're elected, there is no going to be no more democracy. And then they get elected, and they do away with democracy. And then people are like, all right, that's cool. So, so, so in other words, what I'm trying to say is, is that, is that I, I very much hope that in, in all these um, Arab countries, that democracy actually takes root. But there's so much that has to go into these, these systems of government being viable on a long-term basis. And in most or all of these places, those social conventions... And institutions aren't in place. So it's really, it's really kind of tricky. So, so, um, so anyway, I'm not sure how we got on that subject. Democracy from yeah. 24,000 students. Yeah, democracy. Hmm. Yeah, d- democracy. Well, anyway, let's get back to this idea of arrogance, though, and truth-seeking. Is that... Is, is the idea that, um, you see, oh, I, I know what it is now, I'm sorry. You see, one of the reasons, and like, like I said, I was just looking at the New York Times this morning, it's, they, they talk about it, is there's so many, there's so many um, tribes or clans or different kind of um, religious viewpoints and things like that within the countries themselves that each feels as though they're right and the other is wrong. We have the truth. You don't have the truth. We have to be running it. You can't be running it. And so, and, and, and it's sort of like, well, and then they'll kill each other, right? Like the Sunnis and the Shiites, you know, will just kill each other. So along comes democracy, and, and democracy says everyone's got to get along with each other you can think you're right, and you can think you're right, but let's all just get along with each other. Now, okay, that, that sounds good. That sounds good. But one of the things that, if you just as an observer, one of the things that's happened over the course of time, though, in a place that embraces that type of system, is that, you know what, there is no truth. In other words, in other words truth as an ideal becomes undermined in order to get a society where different people believe in different truths, 
truths can get along. So what do they say? They say something that there is no ultimate truth. Now, a lot of times that won't be stated outright, but that will be the, that will be the underlying implication. Yes, you think you're right. Yes, you think you're right. Everyone thinks they're right. Okay, now let's all get along. But the real kind of like hidden message in there is there is no truth. Everyone's just kind of making up their own system. So we say there actually is a truth. And we also say that not only is there a truth, but if you have the truth, don't kill the other guy. You see, people are terrified of any movement that says this is the truth because we understand that the next step is now pick up guns and kill all the people who say it's not the truth. So we, 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 we have this aversion to this notion that there's a truth. And it's based on, you know, it's based on so many horror stories that it's perfectly understandable. But if you think about the way the world is organized, and I'm talking about on a level of physics right now, there is, you know, all of the great scientists, I, I don't know if it's starting with Einstein or if it's before, have had this quest for the unified field theory, which is one system of equations which can be consistent from subatomic molecules, right? Or, I think molecules are already bigger than atoms, so subatomic particles, rather, to planets, right? So, so throughout, it's one set of equations which governs the entire universe. And they all know it's out there. They all know it's out there. They just haven't been able to kind of get it. But that is the holy grail, so to speak, in, in science, is getting that. And whoever gets that is going to be the new Einstein that's going to outstrip Einstein. He's going to be the new greatest scientific mind ever. Whoever is able to get that. And, you know, different people are trying to get it different ways. String theory is like, they're thinking maybe that'll do it. You know, all, all sorts of things. But the bottom line, what I'm trying to say is, is that when we look at the world, there's an order to the world. And I'm talking at a phys- on a physical level. You can say, well, I look at my life, it's nothing but disorder. I understand that. But, but, but just kind of leave your own shoes for a moment and just look at the heavens. Look at the fact that there are trillions of planets that exert incredible, like, fields of gravity and yet aren't slamming into each other, right? How is it that you've got trillions of planets all getting along peacefully and moving around and not bumping into each other? And then you've got atoms which stay atoms. A carbon atom stays one, you know? A, you know, a oxygen atom stays one, you know? Like, every, everything is, like, ordered. You know, I, it's amazing. Someone was, I think someone was saying this recently, It's amazing to think that, you know, gravity, we've got all different forms of gravity, like black holes exert this gravity that they just suck everything in. And anything that goes into a black hole and like, like, like big, huge, heavenly bodies go into black holes. I mean, they just suck them in and then they crush them down to nothing. Right. So you've got different ideas of gravity, like on the moon, for instance. Right. Like on the moon, you like the famous thing where you kind of just take a step and you kind of float up, right? And you come back down and you float up. How 
if you think about probably the probably the infinite variations of, gravi- of, 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 of gravitational pulls that exist in the universe, right? Because every planet probably has, and every star probably has its own version, and there are trillions of them, so there are probably trillions of different levels of gravitational forces. How incredible is it that I can just stand up right now, and when I take a step, my foot goes right on the ground, that I don't become crushed to the size of an M&M, right? Like, that if I, if I just sort of like reach up to grab something on a top shelf, that I don't fly into the ceiling, <laughs> right? Or can you imagine what your life would be like if like getting to work took all day? Because it's sort of like, oh, well, all the way up there now. Oh, you have to wait to come down, you know. It's going to take another 20 minutes. Because I just lifted my leg just infinitesimally too high. And now I'm all the way on the top of the 40th floor. It's going to take a while. Sorry, honey, I'm going to be late, you know. I mean, how amazing is it that gravity is just perfect? It's just perfect. You know, like, like, like if I were to drop something, like you drop, like, you drop a glass, right? It could go through the center of the earth. A volcano could shoot out. That could happen if, if the gravitational force was strong enough. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy how precise gravity is. So, so anyway, getting back to this notion of truth, the idea being that there is a, there is an order, there is a single order to the world. And there, it, it has to be governed. It's being governed and maintained. That's our viewpoint, that God is constantly overseeing the world, he's interacting with the world, he's even recreating the world moment by moment. And, and so, so, the one who is overseeing the oneness we see around us has, has a view. That's what we call the Torah. That's what the Torah is. That's what the mitzvahs are. That's, that's the view. It's not, it's not ten different things. It's not 20 different things or 30 different things. So, so, you know, we say, one of the prayers that we say, in Nusach Sfard we say it every Shabbos, Nusach Ashkenaz, we say it like basically Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, goes through all the letters, and we talk about all the things that belong to Hashem. Uh, Ha-keter ve-ha-kavod Basically, the crown, right? By the way, the idea of crown, keter, crown, in Torah, is very, very interesting. And the, and the glory, the covet, belongs to the one who lives forever, belongs to Hashem. So, before we get to that, let me just make a point. So, covet belongs to Hashem. So, when it says that we didn't give each other enough covet, Right? What, is, what does that mean? That we didn't, that the students of Rabbi Akiva didn't give each other enough honor. That means that we were withholding honor, which means we were holding on to some of the honor, because we wanted to be right. But wait a second. If the covet, if the ultimate honor belongs to Hashem, to, to the extent that you want to be right, you're taking Hashem's covet. Hashem is right. 
So in other words, when you argue an opinion, it's like there's a very fine line, and this is where we cross over into arrogance, where it's sort of like, is that just what the nature of things is, or is it that I'm right? Do you, do you hear the difference? In other words, what is the subtext to the argument that you're having? Is it that I'm right? Or is that that, no, this is how I understand reality to be. This is how I understand God made the world. It's, it's, it makes all the difference in the world. Because, one, I am the repository of truth. The other is, no, there's truth that exists in the world, and this is how I understand it. You understand it differently? All right, let's discuss it. So, Keter is a very interesting idea. Keter, which means crown, is, is that which sits above the head. And so, Kabbalistically speaking, what they say is that there's, there's wisdom, that's, that's, the, that's the domain of the brain, and then there's the area above it, and that's will, that's called ratzon, desire. Okay, so, I, so fascinatingly, there's 620 letters. The, the gematria of the word Keter is 620. There's 620 letters in the Ten Commandments. So it correlates with crown, which correlates with desire. So in other words, in other words, the Torah itself, like I heard Reb Shlomo say this, and this is the, one of the most poetic things I ever heard. When God gave us the Torah, and of course the entire Torah is contained in the Ten Commandments, right? When God gave us the Torah, God is... What, so what are the Ten Commandments, or the Aseris Adibros, more accurately? They're God's dreams for the world. And when you keep them, you're dreaming God's dreams. You're praying God's prayers, and you're dreaming God's dreams. Because this is the idea of a, God's desire for the world which is even above, you know, intellect, so to speak, even be ab- above the, the brain, where the, where, the, uh, where the crown rests. So, you see, there's this wonderful book, I want to recommend it. It's called Hasidic Wisdom um, by Simcha Raz, and it was um, translated by Rabbi Dov Peretz Elkins and Jonathan Elkins. Awesome book. Really recommended from Aronson. And I, I saw something in there this morning, or yesterday rather, which made a big impression on me. I, I, I can't even tell you the Rebbe who said it. I apologize, and I'm sure I'm just paraphrasing it. But here it is. People think that the world belongs to them. People think that the world is theirs. And that's the source of all confusion and uh, bewilderment. And people think the world is theirs and that's the source of all bewilderment and confusion. I think, man, that is great. That's fantastic. Because because we're guests in this world. And we, God has a desire for this world. God has a plan for this world. 
And we're, we fit ourselves into that. But the biggest disconnect in the entire world is when we decide that, no, this world is mine, and it's the playground for the enactment of my desires. And then when things don't go according to plan, we're just bewildered. We can't figure it out. We cannot figure it out. What's going wrong? Why isn't it working? What's going, what's going on? So, you know, I, I, I've shared this story before, but it's just relevant, so let me just do it one more time. I was once staying at the home of a, a wealthy couple, my wife and I, and they were so generous to us. They gave us the keys to the house, literally, told us, come and go and do whatever you want. And um, that Shabbos, they had a beautiful Shabbos table and they had a lot of guests. And, you know, the Shabbos table was really, it was filled with beautiful dishes and silver and all. It was really, it was so majestic. And the, the host was a quiet person and he was sitting at the head of the table and really wasn't speaking much. And for whatever reason, I was in a sort of a very gregarious kind of mood and I was telling stories and Torahs and making jokes and all the rest and, you know, people were enjoying and laughing and and, 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 and when the end of the meal came, I, I, with the host, but I walked the people to the door and I thanked them for coming. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and as I was standing at the door with the host, it hit me, what a chutzpah! I was so embarrassed for myself that here this person had extended themselves in such a beautiful way and I had like you know I decided that this place was mine essentially you know I was so embarrassed for myself and then I thought to myself well how is it any different with us and God you know, God makes this entire world we're guests in this world and we think that we're the hosts. So, you know, one of the tricks, or I should say challenges, of, of understanding Torah is understanding what the, 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 the core, 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 baseline, baseline, baseline teachings are. Because you have teachings in every category and in every sphere, and then sometimes the teachings overlap, and sometimes the teachings seemingly even contradict each other. And so a lot of the, a lot of the um, depth of Torah study is ordering and prioritizing the teachings. That doesn't mean if something is a little bit lower down on the list that it's less important, but it's just in terms of getting the, the full view and full understanding of what the Torah is saying, you have to understand what, how to order things. And that's why I think this teaching, this idea that people think that the world is theirs, and that's the source of all bewilderment and confusion, is one of the primary teachings. Because if we, the first thing we have to understand is that we're guests in this world. And if we... If we don't get that, you see, there's another teaching, just to give you an example of how confusing Torah study can be sometimes. There's another teaching, which is totally 100% kosher and true and pure, is that you have to believe that the entire world was created just for you. That's also 100% a legitimate teaching and, and very important. Right? 
But which one comes first? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the one that the world belongs to God and that we're guests in this world, that one comes first. That one comes first. That's one of the first things that we have to know. And then within that, you have to understand, oh, God created it for me, but I'm still a guest in this world. <laughs> you see? So, so, you know, there's, uh, in Perkei Avos, it says that there are 48 different ways to acquire Torah. Okay, and it's worth, it's worth going over to look at the list. Um, by the way, one of the nice things to do is with Svira, because there are 49 days of Svira, so they say 48 days, one for each of the days, and then the 49th day, it's all of them. You kind of review all of them. Okay? So I looked up, what's, uh, what was yesterday and what's today? By the way, yesterday is a very interesting uh, uh, point in the Svira account. I believe that the Bnei Yisachar brings us. It was the 32nd day of the Omer. So, 32nd, that leaves 17 days, right? Because 32 plus 17 is 49, right? Which is the number of days in the sphere. So, 32 is the gematria of the word lev, or heart, and 17 is tov. So, that means yesterday, like, one of the ways to divide up the sphere is a good heart, a lev tov. And that's, we know that, that someone who has a good heart has all of the Attributes that includes a good eye and all the all the good things are contained within this blessing of a good heart. So interestingly, if you look at the thirty-second acquisition for acquiring the Torah in the in the list of Pirkei Avos, number thirty-two is loving uh, Hashem, and they use the word Hamakom. Hamakom means the place. It's an interesting name for Hashem. It means the Understanding that, that God is everywhere, His omnipresence. That's, that's, so that God is everywhere. And then the next one, for 33, that's today, that's Ladba Omer, is loving His creatures, loving His creations. Now, I remember the first time I think I, I read that list, and I thought to myself, wait a second, why is that two different things? Because if you love God, Hamakom, the omnipresent one, that, that means God who fills the entire world, doesn't that include loving all of his creations? Right? Why do, they, why do the rabbis have to say, no, there's loving God and there's loving his creatures, and those are two different um, things that one has to uh, acquire within oneself, two different attributes to appreciate both aspects. And I realized, you know something? There are people who love God and they don't love people. And there are other people, they love people, they don't love God. And that you can love God and you can really get annoyed with people. <laughs> and that you have to work on both of those aspects. You have to work on both of those aspects. And, and one of the ways to do it, and we'll just finish with this, just trying to tie it all together with Rabbi Kiva's students and giving covet to each other. One of the ways of doing it is just understanding that, you know, truth exists. Truth exists, and you don't own it. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to you. You can, um, you can try to teach it, you can try to live it, but, you know, truth, truth is God's. And um, when you go through life and everything like that, you can share what you understand and everything like that, but don't turn it into arrogance, because that's God's covet. That's not, it's not yours. You know, and... 
And, and by the way, I was going to say ironically or paradoxically, but it's, I don't think it's either ironic or paradoxical. The, the way to perhaps be most persuasive is not to try to persuade. Because to the extent that someone feels like they're trying to be sold a bill of goods, they just are like, you know what? Maybe yes, maybe no. I got to go to the movies. You know, <laughs> it's like, don't, please don't. You know? You just lay it out there, and then people decide on their own, and that's what it is. And then hopefully, if they're thinking clearly, they'll, they'll, they'll arrive at that point. Um, so, so, Hashem should bless us. We should have a good heart, you know? We should really strive to love people. Because I promise you, with all my heart, there's no such thing as an uninteresting person in the entire world. There is no such thing. And if you give a person a chance, you'll find out their depths and depths and depths and depths to the people. And, you know, I just, maybe I, I just uh, end with this one story, and I, I hope that I'll say it accurately, because um, it's kind of hard to convey what emotion I was experiencing in this story, but I hope that I'll be able to give it over accurately. I had the merit of being um, uh, by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's kever, on Lag Bomer, a couple of times actually. But one time at night, and you know, there are bonfires and there's dancing and there's this, just this incredible thing going on just in the air, you know, it's just amazing, you know. And, uh, boy, this was a number of years ago, maybe, maybe 21 years ago or something like this. And there were these two guys kind of by the side of the road playing the guitar. And they had like this tiny little amp, like maybe the size of a grapefruit, you know. And and he had like this Russian hat on. and But he had like, I think, like Hasidic garb on and this kind of Russian fur hat on with ear flaps. And, you know, he kind of was kind of like a, a, kind of like a wild kind of look. And he's playing the guitar, he's playing the electric guitar. And they weren't singing. And the two of them were just like playing. And... Um, it wasn't even so loud, like just like the people in the immediate area could hear. But it was some groove they hit, which was so good. And just with everything going on in the air, it was just great. And there was just a group of people, not even that many, who were just dancing. And I just know my eyes were closed, and I was dancing. And then the next thing I knew, I was, both of them, I was holding hands with someone, just with this one guy. You know, my hand was one hand in one hand, the other hand in the other hand. So both of our hands were holding each other's. And we were just dancing and dancing and dancing and dancing. And uh, it seemed like it went on for a long time. And then I opened up my eyes and I saw he had Down syndrome. And it just amazed me because, you know, the whole thing about... Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the whole thing about the Zohar, the whole thing about reality is, it's just, there's so much oneness that underlies absolutely everything. And that that's really the essence, that's really the core. And all the stuff on the outside is just basically superficial. You know? And uh, we, all, we all share on that level. And um, if you think you're interesting, believe me, everyone else is interesting by, by, by extension of that same thought. Um, and Hashem should bless us that we should be able to just really have a good heart 
and not be distracted by all the superficial things. And really to allow ourselves to achieve this idea of a munapashuta, simple faith, which, as we said, takes a quite a degree of sophistication. To, to have that quiet mind and that tranquility and to really achieve genuine, genuine richness, genuine wealth, which is that notion that we receive directly from God and that whatever he's giving us, that's what we need right now. It doesn't mean we can't ask for more and can't strive for more. We have to. We have to. But at the same time, never to have a lack of appreciation of what it is that we're getting at the same time. Nisham should just bless us with all of our needs. We should get what we desire and what we're looking for. And we should understand that we're, we're guests in this world. But listen, you know something? How much of us would... How much, how much would we pay to receive an invitation to be like the house guests of like Steven Spielberg or to stay in the White House or to stay, you know, like, oh, you, my children, Queen Elizabeth is on the phone. My, my grandkids are getting married and we want to put you up in one of our castles for the wedding, right? How much would we give to be invited to be a guest in, in one of these places? But you know what? God has made us a guest in his palace. That's this world. And we were invited. And God says, you know something? You know, if, you, if you're a house guest at someone's house for a week, that's a long time. God says, you know what, I'll put you up for, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 years. <laughs> that's a pretty good invitation. It's a pretty good invitation. So, you know, last I noticed to get entrance to the beach is free, you know. <laughs> you know, so, so there's, a lot, there's a lot that we can do, you know. Anyway, have a great week.